On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me for the first time in a long time, I think since the preseason, it's my good buddy, Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much. I'm excited to be on the PDO cast. I love this podcast so much, and I think I speak for pretty much everyone who listens that, uh, man, you just do just great work. And I'm just, I'm glad that this podcast has gone on so long, Dimitri, and I think that it's uh, a credit to the work that you put in. Well, first off. You have a standing invite for the show. You've been on many times. You've contributed to it. You don't need to butter me up. You'll be back. This is the, it's not the reason why I haven't had you on since the preseason. We actually I, had you on for the trade deadline and we just the audio tech difficulties yeah, just lost prevented it. us yeah. from posting it. But um, thank you. I, I, there are some people uh, based on the, the iTunes reviews and, and please go leave us a five-star rating and review, of course. Uh, there's some people that for some reason just listen but really don't like the show which is fine too i mean they're helping <laughs> That's fine too. downloads so just keep yeah. that keep that coming get those listens in exactly um all right so here's the plan today i uh, i don't know if you feel this way i mean you 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 have your own podcast and we can talk about that as well along the way um i i struggle with in series analysis for this stuff because mm-hmm. You know, you, you could talk about a game, especially like, oh, this team's up 2-1 and you have all these takeaways from the first three games. And then like if I record it and then I have to wait to post it till the next morning and then they're already playing game four or, or whatever the following night and the other team just comes back and destroys them and makes you look like an idiot. And it seems like that happens all the time. And so for me, it's like this stuff's changing so quickly uh, and the series are evolving. That I really like to just wait for the full whatever four to seven games to play out before I like get to rewatch it and, and actually have some sort of tangible takeaways from it but obviously in the content business i feel like people really want to hear about this stuff as it's happening in real time yeah i, I agree it's it's really tough and i find like my podcast uh, like the because i work it goes through the locked on podcast network and they want everything to be out like really early in the morning so we publish tuesdays and thursdays and we often record monday and wednesday like late afternoon and because of that you're missing the games that night right so like we had to talk about the canadians game against the jets when it was three one or three nothing and we talked about it as if they could sweep or if the jets held on right so you had you had to obviously tell the listeners like we're recording this before but it it's tough to manage like being relevant when things change so quickly in the playoffs like we talked we've talked before about how like momentum game to game in the playoffs is kind of just a media thing and not real so like (laughs) things can change completely like, look at the Colorado Vegas series, you know, game yep. one, it looked like it was one and done, you know, and all of a sudden Colorado's in major trouble. Well, and I think the Habs are a perfect example of that. And we're going to talk about the Habs jets here uh, off the top. Um, 
I didn't really get a chance to talk about this series in, in the lead up to it because the turnaround for the Habs was obviously so fast where they just basically had the one day off between game seven against the Leafs and, and game one at the start of the series. And when I was recording my round two preview, I think at the time the Habs were still down three, two to the Leafs at the time. It was like over the weekend mm-hmm. before uh, their game six. And I remember being like, should we like just talk about this as if it's going to be Leafs jets? Because it seems like that probably is the most rational outcome here. And boy, am I glad that I did not do that because that would have been <laughs> a very unfortunate take. So um, yeah, but listen, since then the Habs have ripped off six straight wins, seven, if you include the, uh, the game five overtime win, they haven't trailed in that time. So I guess that kind of segues us into, into talking about the Habs and Jets. And uh, I don't know, where do you want to kick off this conversation? It can be about the series itself, or it can be about the Habs specifically in terms of their playoffs so far. And kind of, we can even look ahead to, to what's to come in round three. Yeah, I think this series is just so hard to figure out how to rate the Canadians right now, because I think over... Over the course of the season, for the most part, uh, especially before the coaching change, we knew that they were a very strong five-on-five team, but that really faded out as the season went on. But a lot of that drop came when Brennan Gallagher went down to injury, right? And then at the same time, Thomas Tatar was injured. Uh, Philippe Deneau also got a concussion near the end of the season. So it's like somewhat expected that they would be stronger at five-on-five, but then in the Maple Leaf series, they kind of weren't. Right. Like that's not what tilted the series. They got better as the series went on, especially at the beginning of games. But overall, like they weren't amazing at five on five. They just kind of weathered the storm and cut out the highest of high danger chances from Matthews, essentially. Right. So it's like you give credit to like Deneau for sacrificing all offense just to be like the ultimate uh, Thomas Placanic clone and try to shut down the best players in the playoffs. But this Jets series, like they absolutely throttled them. And, you know, losing Mark Shifley and Dylan DeMello in the first game makes a huge difference, but it was not even a competition. Like it, it was crazy how badly the Jets were outplayed. And the Jets aren't a great five on five team, right? But they just never had a hope. Even in that game four where Price spotted Logan Stanley, two freebies there, not to take anything away from Stanley's little snipe jobs, but, uh, they weren't goals that should have gone in the, the jets just outside of Hellebuck and maybe Ehlers didn't show up. Well, that's what I struggle with. Not just this series, but the playoffs as a whole, it's like balancing those two parts of your brain where on the one hand you're thinking like as a rational human being, it's like, how do we make sense of what happened here? What do we learn from this moving forward? And then the other half of your brain, it's kind of like devil and the angel, I guess is a better, better uh, comparison for it, where it's like the NHL playoffs are complete chaos. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to make sense of it because sometimes it doesn't make sense. And there aren't necessarily any lasting takeaways. It can change on a fly. We've seen countless times. I mean, this is a great example where a team sweeps and one round and then they get swept in the next round. And it's like, if you had taken any sort of uh, definitive takeaways or hard stands in between those, you'd wind up looking pretty stupid. And that sometimes just happens. And I think for me, this Habs team is a perfect example of that, where I think it's okay to acknowledge that they, this isn't your typical final four team, right? When they play at an 86 point pace over the full season, they had a negative yeah. goal differential. They had a coaching change, uh, their highest paid player and biggest star is a goalie. Like, yeah, acknowledge all that. But at the same time, they did, as you mentioned, just crush this Jets team, which I think we all had serious reservations about heading in, even after they swept the Oilers, because it was like, all right, well, if 
Connor Hellebuck keeps saving six goals above expected for every four games he plays or whatever he did, then they'll look pretty good. But as soon as he even, and he wasn't a problem in this series by any means, but as soon as he's not the best goalie ever and he's just really good, that's a big issue for them. And that's kind of what we saw in the series. Yeah. I mean, Hellebuck, I thought, especially in game four was absolutely incredible. Like that, that game could have been eight to nothing if Price had not made those mistakes or eight to two, I guess if he did. And just Hellebuck was unbelievable in that game. And, you know, it's hard to figure out how much of it is that the Jets just were defeated going into it and, you know, losing two of their most important players, you know, took the wind out of their sails. And how much was it that the Canadians just played incredible systems hockey, right? Like in terms of the high end talent, they just straight up don't have it offensively, uh, even defensively, <laughs> I guess you could say uh, outside of like a couple of players or like Dano is a great defensive hockey player. Uh, but overall, like they're very unified and they played a essentially perfect series against the Jets. And part of that, of course, is due to the Jets not being a great five on five team and needing to get those cross ice passes to, uh, to get goals. And also the fact that, uh, you know, like as great as Hellebuck was at even strength price had a something like 96 and a half percent save percentage on high danger chances in the series. It's hard to win when that happens. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point you raised there. I, I think, you know, something that I've struggled with over the years is I think it's really tough to sort of fake it till you make it offensively because talent is kind of is the most important thing in terms of creating offense and scoring goals. And you can get, put your players in a position to succeed, I guess. But if you don't have at least like one driver on your line that is going to create those looks for people, you're going to have a tough time putting the puck into the net. I think defensively, like, do you think it's fair to say that the structure of the team or sort of the way they're being played is probably a more important thing than actual defensive ability. And that's maybe why we see such yeah. wild fluctuations in terms of defensive metrics year over year, or especially when like if players switch teams, because it's like they're all probably being asked to play a different position than they did in the previous year. And that's why they're getting different results. I mean, I think Joel Edmondson is a good argument for that, right? Like he was absolutely brutal on the Carolina Hurricanes last year. And this year stuck with Jeff Petrie on his hip. He was able to simplify his game and his results have spoken for themselves. Like they're well, getting, getting pretty incredible. Helps quite a bit too. In that regard. Yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. But I mean, his underlying numbers are they're much better, yeah. much, much better and yeah. have maintained that, uh, that like on a relative scale have maintained in the playoffs as well. So I'm, like my opinion has long been that defense is more about structure than individuals. And there's some individuals who can stand out anywhere. Like you can plop Patrice Bergeron on any team and he's going to have fantastic defensive numbers at uh, Mark stone also, although he like took a slight step down this year when he's finally nominated for the Selkie, right. but uh, you know, still incredible. But overall, I think it's far more important to system wise. Like to me, offense is what, where you try to break a system at even strength and defense is the system that tries to keep those, you know, elite talents from breaking it. Right. It's all about like creating those like miniature odd man situations in like a defensive triangle, essentially everywhere, all over the ice. And, you know, on the power play systems become more of a factor for creating offense. You still have the elite talent that can, you know, boost you over, but you look at like the Maple Leafs, right? Their power play was awful. They have all the talent in the world. That comes down to systems. But at even strength, I think offense is about individuals or chemistry between individuals. 
breaking systems and defense is about the system itself. Well, and we've seen this kind of start to to trickle into the regular season as well, where I think, yeah, at least I can only speak for myself, but like obviously it's very predictive when a team is just dominating the the shot share battle to a significant degree because that 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 signals that they're doing a lot of things well behind the scenes. But there are there are teams that, you know, strategically cut the ice into specific regions and basically, especially defensively, are like, yeah, we'll let you shoot a bunch of shots from the point. Like we're going to talk about this Tampa Bay versus Carolina series, but it's pretty clear that Tampa Bay went into it being like, listen, Dougie Hamilton can shoot 40 times per game from the point if he wants. And yeah, there might be some screens or tips or weird deflections that go in, but in totality, we're pretty comfortable with that because when we get the puck, we're going to get significantly more dangerous looks and we have better finishing yeah. talent that'll probably convert on that. And so it seems like every time we come to the postseason. People are like, oh, wow, this team outshot them so much and they still lost. Like, oh, PDO strikes again. And sometimes there's obviously that. If your goalie plays really well, that that's very important. But it seems like once we get to this time of year, we're really kind of hammering down much more on, on sort of where the shots are coming from on the ice and, and uh, the quality specifically. And that kind of speaks to, to the structure in terms of what your game plan is and sort of what you're allowing. And we saw that in the series where... First off, uh, the Jets couldn't get into any da- dangerous areas on the ice. And second of all, um, I'm not sure how much of this was the Jets' fault and how much of it was the big Canadians' defense, but they boxed them out so well where I think I saw a stat oh, yeah. where like, the Jets had like three rebounds or something all series. Like, it was some comically low number, and that helps a lot in terms of being basically one-and-done sequences for for your goalie keeping the puck out of the net. Yeah, the, the Jets... The only way that they were able to manufacture anything in that series, like you look at uh, most of the goals that Price gave up were those like cross crease passes to like the wide set one timers, which is a very Winnipeg Jets play, right? Like they love to have Kyle Connor, not necessarily in the scoring chance area, but like right outside it on off the circle there. And he's able to just wire that on a thin slice of net and find it. And man, he's such a great goal scorer. But I think that comes down to like, uh, you look at the Jets in total, and I, I've seen a lot of conversations about whether or not Paul Maurice should be back. And I think that if you had asked me three years ago if Paul Maurice was a very good coach, I'd say yes. You know, like the Jets were really humming and things were looking good. And the roster has kind of been torn out from under him, especially on D. Like the turnover they've had there is crazy. But in going back to what I was saying just before, offense is about individuals, right? And like the Jets, the reason why they're able to outperform expectations every year is because they have a group of players who have extremely high-end finishing and passing talent and Connor Hellebuck. And like Dylan DeMello is their only defenseman who I would say is like a legitimate top four on any team. Neil Pionk has come a long way, but I'm still a little bit skeptical of him. And I, I just see like something's got to go there. <laughs> you know, like there's got to be some change. I mean, I, I talked about this a while back with Kevin Woodley on a podcast and, and I thought it was a really great point in terms of like the psychological effect for goalies, where if you don't trust the defense in front of you, it's like, there's this snowball effect. Yeah. You're just watching the series, watching any jets game, but like, I think it was game two. I, I tweeted out a couple screen grabs were literally a minute apart. The Habs had two different two on ones with two different players involved. Like, like, how does that even happen? I know the Jets were down and they were probably pressing a little bit and, and trying to pinch a bit more, but 
it's like if you're the goalie and you're just constantly facing these barrages, we've always seen the screen grabs of it was like the three on O that I think the Habs had against them uh, earlier in the season. It, it's just it's it's comical. And so I, I really do feel bad for Hellebuck because he was fantastic in this series. And I think it's pretty rare that a, a goalie plays as well as he did in this series and the team loses, especially in four yeah. consecutive games. But that just speaks to, um, you know, both the quality and the quantity uh, being so largely in Montreal's favor in those four games. Yeah, I think that's the thing that surprised me most about this series is that Hellebuck would make those saves on like a two-on-one and then like three straight two-on-ones inside of like five minutes. And normally when that happens, you see a team rally around their goaltender and the Jets just couldn't figure out a way to build up their energy level and attack and like make it matter. And I, I just wonder how deflating that must be for the goaltender. Because especially when you're, you're giving up looks like the Jets do give up, I find with goaltenders, you know, you said Kevin Woodley talked about the snowball effect. You start to see things like a goalie uh, assuming that a pass is going to happen that shouldn't happen, right? Like a cross-crease pass where normally you would just have a stick in the lane, but the goalie is going to assume that that pass is going through. And then they get beat short side on the shot instead because they're having to think too much about what their team is going to fail at and what they have to cover for. And Hellebuck somehow over the last two seasons has maintained his focus the entire time. And just like, he doesn't give those goals up very often. And man, he's not nominated for the best this year. It's crazy. It's crazy. With like a nine fourteen save percentage or something, but yeah, ridiculous goal save that expected because the quality was just insane. Yeah. Um, on the Paul Maurice thing really quick. I thought it was really Interesting. I, I think there's a lot to quibble with in terms of his usage and whether uh, it's a flawed roster, but whether he's doing the most to put them in a position to succeed. Uh, if I was a player on his team, I would love Paul Maurice because he mm. does the most masterful spin jobs of his team's performance that I've ever seen in the media. It was like, I think it was after game three of the series where he had some quote where he's like, Actually, if you look at the zone exit, zone exit and zone entry numbers against, it's it's pretty even. Like it's it's there's there's no issues there. And <laughs> I I haven't looked at those numbers just from watching these games though. I'd imagine that technically that is correct, but it's very disingenuous strategically because uh, the Jets were getting the puck out of their zone, but then the second pass in the neutral zone was getting picked off and coming back the other way. So I guess <laughs> that would be marked as a really good zone, clean zone exit. But the second pass after it was really bad. And similarly, yeah, they probably did a pretty good job of of preventing zone entries against because the Habs are just dumping it in and just destroying their defensemen. So yeah, I, both of those probably do, I guess, technically check out, but uh, they really do not tell the full story to here in terms of how these two teams play. Oh, and it's also like time of game matters too, right? Like if you're down three to nothing or whatever, and you're like, oh yeah, well, we we're doing great on the zone entries and zone exits because the other team is just sitting back and right. trying to avoid uh, blowing the lead. Then yeah, of, of course it's going to look fine. Or if you're trailing for like 40 straight minutes and I, I don't have like the ticker for that whole series, but the Jets trailed for almost that entire series. Well, the Habs haven't trailed since what game four of the Leaf series or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I've got two notes here that I wanted to get on in terms of, uh, the depth and, and defense. Let's do the depth first. So, you know, the Habs had this grueling schedule to start the postseason because for whatever reason, they had to wait for the Canucks and flames to finish off literally playing out the string of the regular season in, in, in sad fashion. Um, they played 11 games in 19 days. 
nine games in 15 days. They played two sets of back-to-backs in the playoffs, um, only had the one day off between the two series. And I was wondering sort of what your thoughts were in terms of whether they were positioned well, sort of in terms of the way they were constructed to handle that just because they are such a team that doesn't really have, you know, your typical star forward that's playing 23 minutes a night and has to carry the burden every single night. They're so evenly balanced throughout their lineup, especially up front where I think in this series, like their low watermark at five on five was Cole Caulfield at like 10 minutes and 40 seconds per game. And then the high watermark was like Philip Dano at 14 minutes and everyone else was basically in between that. And they were, they really were rolling four lines. And I've had issues when teams like the Predators do that in the past. Cause it's like Philip Forsberg should just be playing more than yeah. Colton Sissons. Like this is clearly a sign that your coach either doesn't know who his best players are, or doesn't think it's important to play your best player. And both are, are big time issues. But in this case, because of the way they were constructed, because of the fact that if you look at their cap sheet, they have so many of these sort of, middle tier salaries where it's, it seems like this kind of was the plan. I'm wondering whether this is just sort of trying to fit a neat narrative in or whether like there is something to this in terms of, uh, you know, the way they actually use their players. I mean, I, I think there's something to it for sure. And, you know, I talked to Eric Engels for uh, my podcast yesterday and he was, he, I don't remember if it was on the podcast or like when we chatted afterward, but I asked him like down the stretch, do you think the Canadians were giving it their all? And he was like, no, <laughs> like laughed. He was like, just talking to the players, like every veteran on that team was coasting and they were like, Cole Caulfield, you, uh, you get us into the playoffs, just get a couple overtime wins for us. And uh, we're just going to let it, let it ride and we'll show up when it matters. And you know, it, I think it took them a couple games into that Toronto series to find their feet, but it, it's kind of funny to see like a team like this that just rolls their lines essentially and balances everything out. And then those games that they won against Toronto and the first few games against the Jets as well, it was like, okay, but we're only going to use four defensemen. Right. <laughs> like, and, and talking to, I mean, Jeff Petrie's injured now. He's got, uh, I think, dislocated his pinky and ring finger by getting it caught in the camera hole in the glass, which is a pretty freak instance, but yeah, uh, yeah he should be healthy for the next round uh, or healthy. It playoffs healthy. Yeah. He'll uh, play. But yeah. Like Shea Weber, when they, that series started against Toronto, couldn't hold a stick in one of his hands, you know, like <laughs> Brennan Gallagher couldn't stuff. shoot or handle yeah. the puck. So it's like, these guys were pretty banged up to start, but seem to be getting healthier. And that balanced lineup definitely helps that. And based on what Eric was saying from talking to players around the team, uh, the top four D seem to be loving the amount of ice time they've been getting. So it, it's an interesting situation. It seems like they're not necessarily, I think there's a narrative of like this team was built for the playoffs when they were one lucky bounce away from being swept yep. by the Toronto Maple Leafs, but they are built for, riding out uh, this kind of schedule. I think uh, even with injuries, they're just, they're able to have enough players who are good to, to coast along and they're not coasting along at the moment, but they're, they're dominating. But uh, well, I just I thought think was, there's a lot to that. I thought it was an interesting note. Cause I, I do think sort of, you know, the, the future uh, and we've seen it with a number of teams is like, you know, you have a couple stars they are making a significant chunk of your cap. And then you try to, nail the timeline with a bunch of players on ELCs or, or values that can sort of help supplement that. And you do it that way. And then every once in a while you see this team come around that has like 
eight players who are all making between three and four million dollars per year. And yeah, um, you know, there, there there's pros and cons to both. Obviously, yeah, I, I you know, we, we we've alluded to this, but we do this every year where something happens in the postseason, and then we all after the fact react to it this is a way to build the team ourselves into a pretzel trying to sort of fit that narrative of like actually this is this is right all along whereas as you mentioned if a couple bounces go a different way you'd be like wow they really need to change the gm the coach and blow everything up because this is going nowhere and it's it's a very dangerous game to play but you know i guess it, it is up to us to try to figure out sort of little things here or there in terms of why stuff's happening and so that's i just throwing it out there but um Okay, defensively, so it was a significantly, you know, and in round one, I thought they did certain things well. I thought, especially in game seven um, against the Leafs, there was they were giving up very little, and then basically when when they had the game in the bag, the Leafs started pressuring quite a bit and, and got uh, some chances. But for the most part in that game, it was about as well of a defensive game plan that you can execute as as they did, um, and we saw that in this series as well against the flawed Jets team where. As we talked about, they boxed out so well. They controlled the neutral zone. They didn't give them anything really um, in terms of quantity or quality. How, like, I'm trying to I guess, I reconcile those things in terms of how we spin that forward against either the Abs or the Knights, depending on who they play, in terms of trying to do that against a better team. Because despite the fact that Carey Price gave up very few goals against in round one, I wouldn't really classify most of that series as a great defensive effort. Like Austin Matthews yeah. just didn't convert on his chances. And if those pucks do go in, then all of a sudden it's an entirely different story. And so we're trying to look at the process rather than the results here. So uh, how do we sort of preview that against a, a better team in terms of if Carey Price, if they're giving up those chances and Carey Price isn't stopping a ridiculous amount of them, all of a sudden, do they actually have a defensive game plan? Yeah, it, it's it's hard to know i mean i i watched a super cut of matthew's shifts against deno in the in the first round and it's shocking how much in the offensive zone that deno is like at most three feet from matthews like it was very 1980s shadow situation and they just allowed the rest of it to go four on four and i think that's why if you like break down the tape mitch marner got so much heat because when you focus so much on austin matthews and yeah he got his shots but very few of them had like no sticks in his way or nothing obstructing him. Like people were in his face the whole series, especially Phil Deneau. And that, that extra space that Marner was given, I think the fact that he did essentially nothing with it is why people are all up in his yeah. grill right now. Uh, I don't know if Colorado is capable of being shut down in that same manner because Matthews, as great as he is, is much more of a, a cycle player. Um, like, I don't, I don't want to say the puck. He waits for the puck to come to him. He doesn't. Like, he he does a lot of great things, but he's not a player necessarily who is dynamic off the rush. He can be uh, if if he catches him with speed, but he's not the primary puck carrier. And I think that's why Willie Nylander. Uh, excelled so well in that series is that he plays with pace through the neutral zone and attacks off the rush. And that puts the Canadians relatively slow defensive core on their heels. And Matthews is a guy who likes to own the offensive zone. Well, McKinnon is much more like a much better William Nylander, right? So it's a lot harder to shut him down and you need a team that has depth throughout the lineup like Vegas does to be able to do that. 
Well, if, if you look at what, what Vegas, one of the big turnarounds beyond just having someone like Mark Stone to, to throw at McKinnon's line is like their defense has been so aggressive yeah. in terms of both Theodore, Petrangelo, even like White Cloud and Martinez, where they're stepping up in the neutral zone and trying to basically stop the abs in their tracks before they can get a full head of steam. Yeah. And they're still fast enough to be able to go back and defend, even if they get beaten, where I, I think it'll be a bit more concerning to me watching Sherratt and Edmondson yes. and Weber trying to pivot and go back against uh, McKinnon or even like a, a guy like Brendan Saad, for example, who has beat up the wing himself. Yeah, absolutely. And like similar to Vegas, like I think Vegas can do everything that the Canadians can do, but with more talent, right? Instead of Sherratt, Petrie, Edmondson and Weber, it's, you know, Petrangelo, Theodore, and some of their young guys and Martinez, like they've got some, some good movers back there and they're also pretty strong defensively. So it's, it becomes a situation where you're looking for gaps that you can find for the Canadians to exploit and you're not finding very many. You're like those two teams are such, it's like Godzilla versus King Kong, right? Well, and then on the, the other end of things, because we're recording this before the Avs and, and the Knights have played their game six. So we'll see how uh, that shakes out. But, you know, Vegas has has uh, notably given a lot of goalies the best series of their career over the past couple of years. And it's very plausible. It's within the realm of possibility to envision Carey Price having a 950 save percentage or something in seven games against Vegas. So it's, uh, hard, yeah. it's uh, yeah, in terms of pr- kind of projecting you know, neither one is a good matchup, I'd say. I mean, they were tied in the, <laughs> for first in the league in terms of point percentage this season, and they were arguably the two best teams in the regular season. So it's kind of pick your poison, but they are uh, such different teams stylistically, which has made that series so great. Yeah. And trying to figure out how Montreal would sort of shake out against either of them is an interesting exercise. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really fun. And I, I'm, I, what I'm really interested to see is like, is the North division actually trash? Because if the Canadians just get like blown out of the water in four straight games, I think there's a lot of people who's, who are going to be doing I told you so's, right? Yeah, but and even if they somehow, if they win a series or if they make it competitive, I don't think that necessarily proves that Calgary was actually good this year. No, that's true. <laughs> it's just like the huge gap that is assumed right. between the divisions gets. We just like, haven't seen a lot more doubt play at all this season. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We do. We just don't know which division is the best. Uh, I think there's like speculation about which one is the best. I think that, like you said, these are the two teams that I would cl- qualify as the the best teams in the league this year. But at the same time, they had to fight each other in Minnesota and a bunch of trash. You know, like that division was weak at the bottom with the three California teams. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. Um, is there anything else on the Habs that you wanted to talk about? We haven't really. I mean. Man, Cole Caulfield, a, uh, so fun to watch. I think fair to say their most dangerous player, it seems like, creates the most uh, you know frightening looks if you're the other team yeah. he had. Him or Suzuki, one of the two. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair. I, I just think, like especially on a per-minute basis, what he had 14 yeah. shots and 19 attempts in that series and, and still hasn't scored, but obviously set up the uh, the series winner to Toffoli and made a number of great passes. And, and uh, you know, you love to see that because I think he was sort of billed as you know, a great offensive player, obviously, but mostly a shooter who's going to score a bunch of goals. And to see this early on in his career, the playmaking there as well, it's only going to make the shooting that much more dangerous once the goals are coming. Yeah, you can feel eventually, once he gets one in the playoffs, it, 
you might open the door for a bit of a scoring streak. He's it, it the first few games, especially the first game against the Jets, he seemed kind of hesitant to shoot and he wanted to like set his teammates up. It's that rookie thing, right? Where like you don't want to step on anybody's toes by being the glory hog. And it was very clear that the coaching staff came to him and was like, listen, stop thinking, shoot the puck, do what you do inst- instinctually. And then from then on, he was just like, okay, I'm going to get seven shots a game. You know, and, and it was it was a lot more fun to watch him when he uh, tries to do what he's good at. And not that he's not a good passer. It's just that when you're playing with instinct, I think that makes for much better hockey. And yeah, there's little things that he does that he's just the, the quick reactions that have caught players completely off guard. Uh, there was a scoring chance that he created in game four against the Jets where he just kind of like tapped the puck through a player's legs and then like deked him out without the puck. It was really, really funny. Kind of like hopped over his stick and then he was in alone on, on Hellebuck. And it seemed like Hellebuck was particularly determined not to let Caulfield score in that series. He like flashed the leather every time, but uh, yeah, I I think he's probably going to get one this next series. If there's anybody who can really key the Canadians to a surprising performance, I think it would be Cole Caulfield starting to score like mad. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's fair to say. Certainly adds a different dynamic to the lineup. Um, all right. Was there anything else on, on the Habs or the Jets or do you want to talk, uh, Kane's bolts for a bit? Well, we could uh, credit Jim Benning for Tyler Toffoli. Thank you, Jim. Um, recognized employees with custom ink, show customer appreciation with custom ink, outfit your teams with custom ink, easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custom Make custom ink your custom gear partner with great customer service quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. Okay, Kane's Bolts. I, you know, it came in with a lot of um, hype, and I think it wasn't the series that Vegas, Colorado has been uh, yeah. throughout. Uh, obviously ended in five games, which is, which is a bit premature. I think, you know, the games were played at a really high level and there was a lot of drama in, in between those games. So even though Tampa won four of the five, they were all really close and, and, and hotly contested. I just think it played out the way you probably would have thought it would, right? Where Tampa was very content to let them shoot from the points. They lost the shot count battle, but they destroyed them in high danger attempts throughout the series yeah. and their power play just absolutely eviscerated them. You know, when you combine that with with Vasilevsky, it's basically like a super duper high end version of Winnipeg, where you yeah. know, they're not getting caved in at five on five, but they only really need to to tread water. They don't need to be a fifty five percent shot share team with the talent that they have at, at the highest leverage positions. Yeah, it helps to uh, have Nikita Kucherov in your back pocket, ready to go right out of the gate in the playoffs. He's been incredible. I like. I thought he was going to be a little bit rusty to start because you know not playing in so long. Uh, no, <laughs> he was rusty. He was rusty against Florida at five one five. Like he, he was, he, he, was, he was trying he was. to keep up with the speed of the game. Yeah. There was some, like some plays you could see where he was, you know, fighting the puck a little bit and then the power play kicks on and he's like, okay, I'm Nikita Kucherov again. But yeah, you, you talked about the power play. And I think that as much as there's, you know, a lot of talk and I, I've mentioned it as well, the Carolina hurricanes, I think again, they just settle for poor quality shots and they've, they've got to find a way to, change their system a little bit to, to get those higher quality looks. Cause I think they're now they have the talent, the excuses aren't there as much as they were back when they were the analytics darling, but missing the playoffs. Right. 
and you know maybe it's they need to add a couple more playmaking players that uh, can can move the puck into the middle for some of their shooters but overall i think five on five people made a bit too much of a big deal out of how content they were to to shoot from the outside the crazy thing about this series that i was looking at was that their power play production in terms of inputs was essentially the same but tampa bay scored on 50 percent of their high danger chances on the power play and the uh, lightning scored or no uh, the hurricane scored on only 14 percent and in terms of scoring chances overall 30.4 percent they uh, the lightning scored on their scoring chances on the power play and the hurricanes just five and a half percent and that's devastating because the goals at even strength were seven to six yep you know not that big of a deal but overall i mean the microcosm for the series was that uh game for second period which is probably the craziest period of of the entire postseason where there were eight goals in like a 15 minute span or something but the canes went into that period down one they outscored the lightning 4-1 in that period of 5-1-5 they outshot them 10-5 and they came out of that period still down one because the lightning scored three quick power play goals during that time. And that was like, you know, if you look at this postseason so far in round one against the Panthers, they had 20 power play opportunities and 24 minutes on the man advantage. They scored eight goals. So oh God. And then you come out of that and you're like, all right, well, you know, some regression is due here. Obviously, we're not going to expect the team to keep scoring at this rate. And I guess technically they did regress a little bit to the point where at round two, they had 16 power play opportunities, 20 two and a half minutes with a man advantage and seven goals. So, you know, <laughs> a slight downtick. They might score not six quite goals 50% in the round. Yeah, exactly. Only, only 40 ish or so. Um, and this is against one of the teams that we figured would be best suited to at least give them some issues with how they kill penalties, right? With the quote unquote power kill where they're, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're attacking the, whoever has the puck and they're not just sitting back and trying to block shots and, and they're creating themselves. And they were one of the stingiest penalty kills in the league throughout the season. And they just carved right through them, whether it was, you know, the cross ice passes, the one timers, what really stuck out to me was, and it must be so demoralizing as a penalty killer where they would just put the clamps on them for like a minute and 20 seconds to start a two minute power play where they would get the puck out of the zone right away, clear it, go for a change, just keep doing that. And you're like, okay, we're on the right track here. We're going to kill this one off. And then there's like a weird bounce in the offensive zone and someone lunges in the wrong direction. And then like, the lightning just capitalize and feed off of this chaotic energy on the power play yeah. where as soon as guys get out of their position, it's like it's domino effect where one guy's out of position, the next guy's out of position. And all of a sudden it's tic-tac-toe and it's in the back of your net in like the blink of an eye. And it happens so quickly that there's no real way to stop it once that domino effect starts. And that just must just suck so much as a penalty killer because you can do everything right. And it, it might not even be a mistake on your part. It might literally be a weird bounce or, or Victor Hedman just keeps the puck in the zone at the blue line. And then all of a sudden it's a goal and, yeah. and there's just no, no way around it. A shot off of a skate. And Oh, look at that. It goes right to Braden point with an open net and yeah. he's not going to miss. Yeah. They, you know, part of it is, you know, getting the bounces, especially when you're getting, you know, when you're scoring on 41% of your power plays, you're, you're getting some good bounces. That's for sure. And luck is a part of any Stanley cup winner and anyone getting far in the playoffs but also the lightning just have so much talent. Like their top end guys are just ridiculous. And, you know, I, I forget who was pointing this out. I think it might've been Chris Johnson that the Tampa Bay lightning last year, if you look past their top scorers, like they didn't really get offensive contributions from anyone, 
You know, it was like Braden Point, Nikita Kucherov, and Victor Hedman. And then after that, there's this giant gap, you know, and this year they also have Stamkos there. And, man, I just, it's hard to imagine how they're going to get stopped. <laughs> you know, they're just such an incredible team top to bottom. We'll, we'll see if the Islanders' vaunted defend, defensive system can slow the lightning down because, I mean, somebody has to try, right? And I, I mean, don't know. They, they stayed in it last year the concern for them i think for me is like the lightning attacks so unconventionally in the sense that they don't use that net front guy and they have so much movement in the offensive zone that it's really tough to uh it's like the one of the few teams that poses this problem where they can kind of like hardwire a good team in the defensive zone similar to what they did to dallas last year in the stanley cup final right where it's just like they can just move it around and and all of a sudden victor hedman's in front of the net for a redirection and you're like what the hell how did how did he get here? How do we lose yeah. the biggest guy on the ice? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's a big takeaway for me from this series, because in round one, we know that Hedman, uh, his numbers fell off after he got hurt. He shouldn't have been a Norris finalist. Um, it was a reputation award. He, uh, you know, admirably, I guess you could say maybe foolishly is, is playing through an injury that's going to require offseason surgery uh, as they try to repeat here as Stanley Cup champions. And against Florida, I was wondering how much of it was that he just couldn't physically skate because he was not, he was like staying back and being like, okay, you guys attack four on five. I'm going to be back here. And, uh, once the Panthers come back in the counterattack the other way, I'll be, I'll be in the right set position. And so I was wondering how much of it was physical skating, how much of it was that game plan out of respect to the Panthers. And in this series, he was much, much more active in terms of doing Victor Hedman stuff in terms of jumping into the rush and being the trailer on three on twos and stuff like that. So if that can continue, that's, that's a huge boost for a lightning team that obviously, as you mentioned, already has a lot of weapons to choose from. Yeah. They don't need a boost. That's the crazy thing, you know, like, Oh man, this team, I mean, I guess it makes sense that they're $18 million over the cap, but there's no cap in the playoffs. So it doesn't really matter. Right. Well, also we, I don't know how you feel about this, but like, I get my, my opinion is all credit to them. Yes. Yeah. Well, like, first off, have a, first off, having an owner who's willing to foot the bills and pay yep. for players who aren't pay, playing for you. Second, having a GM who's shrewd enough to exploit every possible avenue to to improve your team and give them a chance to win a Stanley Cup. If you want to hate on someone, hate on the league for having a very exploitable loophole that people can take advantage of, and hate on your own team, but for not doing so. Yeah, for sure. And the, the fact is, like a reckoning is coming in terms of the salary cap for the Lightning. Like they can't keep the band together forever. Braden points up for a contract next year in 2022. I don't think he's going to take 6.75 million again, which is, I don't know how they convinced him to do that. Like, yeah, I know I it's a bridge him. deal, but like he, he, there's no way Braden point is still there. Right. And like, when, when you say there's a salary cap reckoning, was that a quote from 2018 or 2019 or 2020? <laughs> well, I just, I just can't see how they're going to fit it in, but you know, maybe they will anyway, they're magic, but I mean, maybe Stamkos decides that he's going to retire at 32, you know, like not no. that that would help them, but uh, yeah, I, I just don't see how they can keep Braden point, but I mean, maybe Victor they just Hedman, will find a way. Victor Hedman has already declared that he will need off season surgery this, this summer. So, Oh, so he's the guy who's going to be the new Kucherov. Eh? I love the idea that like one of the, best two or three players at your position, just not playing all year is actually a good strategy. Like obviously come to postseason, it's great, but it's like, come on, if, if you can play, he's going to be in your lineup. For sure. Although um, from what, from what I heard from a couple of people, uh, Nikita Kucherov probably could have played the last month of the, of the season. He was practicing pretty hard. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. It was like entirely know. within the reasonable realm of rehabilitation for him. Right. To if miss. it was a postseason, he would have come back. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Well, um, definitely something for the league to consider moving forward, but credit to them. And they're Absolutely. Uh, really, really good. And uh, I'm not taking anything away from them because they, uh, they've earned it full marks. Um, for the Hurricanes, though, I think it's a big offseason. Uh, yeah, we're going to have plenty time. of time to talk about it in terms of like previews and stuff like that in July. But, you know, they've got Dougie as a UFA and he's going to have not only uh, the leverage to make a lot of money, but a lot of teams who really need a high end defenseman who all of a sudden have a bunch of cap room that are going to be pursuing him, I imagine. And they have no goalies under contract in terms of NHL level deals. Uh, although Nedirkovic um, is an RFA. And I'm wondering whether they're going to take the patient route in terms of sort of what the abs have done, where it's like, we have a lot of foundational pieces already in place and we're going to just kind of try to keep adding to that on the margins and be smart and maybe trade a couple picks here in the off season for a player that another team can't afford and retain, or whether they're going to try to really increase their risk profile and kind of push a lot of chips in and maybe leverage some of these assets into another high end playmaker, another high end skater that can really, try to help push them over the top offensively. Um, and yeah, I was thinking they haven't really been linked that much to Jack Eichel, but the fit there, I think makes a lot of sense for me in terms of uh, how that would look and them being one of the few teams that has the assets to realistically do so. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They definitely have some, some pieces that can move. And I mean, Jack Eichel would be a foundational change. There's definitely some some questions about like what's what's going to happen for them going forward. I feel like they're they've got a lot of money on defense that uh, maybe is a little bit overvalued. Like, is Brady Skay or Shea Brady worth Shea, yeah. five million dollars? Did Jake Gardner even play in the playoffs? I don't think I've heard his name once. No, I don't think he did. And, and, and the thing for them, at least with that type of trade, like they could package a bunch of assets, and then Buffalo could just take Jake Gardner's contract, right? Yeah. Like to make yeah. the money work. And so that's why I also think it's very appealing for them because they can get off of some of the bad money they have. And for Buffalo, it's like, yeah, we'll gladly take Jake Gardner. He'll instantly be a top four defenseman for us. <laughs> yeah. I, I do wonder at one point, at one point though, is Buffalo going to realize that, like you can't, you can't do that. You're like, Oh, we'll take your bad contract to get rid of this star player. <laughs> no, it's, you know, yeah, they, they can't do another Ryan O'Reilly trade, right? They, they're going to have to get something big for Jack Eichel in order to make it happen. I guess I, you look at the Taylor Hall trade, you don't really have a lot of faith in what they're going to get back. But uh, yeah, I, I think anything where you're acquiring a guy at the, like the level of Jack Eichel, you'd expect to lose something serious like Svechnikov, which I don't no, think they would be willing not to part with. They're not going to move Svechnikov or NHS as far as I, I'm aware. So yeah. that's, and yeah, you're right. If, if you're Buffalo at this point, like getting a volume play where you get a bunch of assets is nice. But when you're losing your best player and your friend foundational piece and someone you like very actively tanked to get in the first place, it's really tough to be like, all right, we're going to get these four futures that have a 12% chance of becoming half as good as Jack Eichel six years from now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's tough. I feel bad for Buffalo as much as I also don't. Cause it's funny. <laughs> but uh, Carolina, I think Carolina, you know, there's, it's, you can make a big change and I don't think they'd be, wrong to do so but i feel like they're also a team that can work along the margins and continue like they can run it back next year and i don't think anybody would necessarily blame them i think 
just finding a way to play a little bit different and maximize what you've already built. It makes a lot of sense as well. Well, that, and that's the thing. Like they, by any objective measure, had a really successful season. Yeah. And then they just ran into Tampa Bay in the second round. If this had happened in the conference finals, you'd be like, all right, like this is a, a very good step in the right direction. But unfortunately, just because of the divisional format, it, it happened in the second round this season. And I think especially what's disappointing is we talk about sort of what type of shots they're getting and the skill and sort of how they're trying to attack f- at offensively. They had one of the, I think they had the second best power play in the league this season. And that failed them in the series. As you mentioned, those stats earlier where they didn't really convert on them and score and Tampa Bay continued to score at a historic pace on the power play. And that's disappointing, but it, it's a five game sample. I'm not necessarily like if you can get someone of Jack Eichel's caliber, of course you do it 10 times out of 10, but I'm not sure all of a sudden panicking and trying to like fundamentally change your team because of this outcome is the right call either. Yeah. Agreed. I think if anything, if anything would make me panic for, from the hurricanes perspective, it would be their performance against the predators more than, more than the lightning, like the lightning you almost expect to lose and for it to be heartbreaking and, over quicker than you ever thought it would be. But I think the Predators, I know UC Saros was incredible, but uh, at, at some point you got to stop making, you know, MVPs out of goalies. And I think the Carolina Hurricanes have a habit of that. And they also, I don't think uh, Nadelkovich was bad in the playoffs. No. But the fact that they went to Mrazic at all um, shows that they don't have full confidence in him. And, at a certain point, I think they need to uh, put some of the in- incredible intelligence that they put into their player acquisition at forward and defense into goaltending as well, because they haven't had a lot of luck there. And it seems like they're kind of willing to settle on, you know, f- fringe guys and hoping that they'll have good years as opposed to identifying a player who can be there for the future. And the last time they tried that was Scott Darling and it clearly did not work out. Yeah. But they I mean, their goaltending was really good this season, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, and obviously the part of that season. helps with the way they play and, and, and defensive players they have in front of them. But I don't know, against this lightning team, there's very few goalies in the world where they could have paid any sort of price to get them. And I would have felt very comfortable that they would have been able to shut down Kucherov and point and Stamkos and headman and so on and so forth. So it's a tough problem, but I'm not necessarily sure just throwing a bunch of money or capital at, a goalie is going to solve it. It's, it's no, it's tough. I think it's, there's something to be said for sticking with it and bouncing back next year and hoping that you don't have to play the Tampa Bay lightning in round two and making a longer run as a result. So we'll see. It'll be an interesting season. I think they're going to be active because they do have a lot of big decisions to make. And we know they're certainly, um, you know, very progressive in terms of their talent evaluation. So I think if they see an opportunity to strike this off season, they're going to, they're going to go for it. And I think like, do you feel like there's going to be a lot of opportunities to do so off season because of the flat cap and because of the expansion draft and because, uh, you know, last off season was so disappointing. It feels like there's going to be a lot of moves to be made this, this summer. Yeah, absolutely. I would assume so. Even with the flat cap, I think we're going to see some deals that are pretty surprisingly like the same thing as like Toffoli last year, right? Yeah. Where he's probably a six and a half million dollar player and signed for 4.25. You know, and I think we'll see a lot of deals like that. And a lot of players who kind of had down years this year uh, and even in last year's playoffs bounce back in a big way. I think we generally underestimate how hard the whole COVID situation has been on on players mentally. And, you know, like 
guys like Pierre-Luc Dubois have spoken openly about like, this is the worst year of his life. Uh, worst year of a lot of our lives, Pierre. <laughs> yeah, he was. But uh, yeah. yeah, so I think we're going to see a, a lot of players show a different uh, level next year and some some really interesting movement over the offseason. You know, I'm you know looking at these two series that we're talking about. If you merged Carolina with Winnipeg, you would have an unstoppable juggernaut. Just get some of that playmaking from Winnipeg onto the amazing processes of Carolina. Whew. Yeah, you don't even need Hellebuck. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if you combine any two playoff teams, they'll wind up making a really, really good team. They'll make the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's the takeaway. All right, man. Um, I think that is going to be it for today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast. Plug some stuff. Uh, let people know where they can check you out and, and listen to your podcast and all that good stuff. All right. So I'm still writing for the uh, Montreal Gazette. I've got my By the Numbers series that I do there. I also have a sub stack that you can check out that I've got linked on my Twitter at, at Andrew Berkshire. And I also am the co-host of the Crosscheck NHL podcast for the Locked On Podcast Network, where I talk with uh, Mary Clark and a guest every Thursday. Awesome, man. Well, this was a blast. I'm glad we got to do this after a, a long time of not chatting and uh, we'll make sure to do so again soon. So uh, enjoy the Absolutely. rest of the postseason and we'll, uh, we'll catch up. You as well, man. Cheers. All right. That's going to be it for today's episode of the Hockeypedia cast. Thanks as always for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed my chat with Andrew Berkshire. We will be back uh, soon, hopefully, to discuss some of the other round two series and preview the conference finals and the final four and as the games wind down here, we'll hopefully have more time to uh, do some more in-series analysis and, and, and churn out some shows um, in between games and all that good stuff. So uh, thanks for your patience. I know we haven't run a show since the round two previews, um, but we will we'll ramp up the activity here more moving forward. Um, as I said at the top, if you enjoyed listening to the PDO cast and you want to help us out, leaving a five-star rating interview goes a really long way towards helping us out. A lot of you have done so already, and I really, really appreciate each and every one of you that have done so. If you haven't yet, for whatever reason, uh, please consider doing so. It only takes a minute of your time. It's really easy to do. You can just hit the the five-star button. You can, if you have more time and, and you're really uh, feeling up for it, you can leave a quick little review to tell us what you enjoy about the show or why you recommend others check it out if they haven't done so already. And uh, yeah, each one of those is greatly appreciated. It helps us a lot. So thank you for doing so. Uh, we'll be back here soon in a couple of days with another PDO cast. And until then, here's the outro music. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.